Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sherman Alexie. He's a major voice in contemporary American literature. He's the author of 20 books, including Reservation Blues and The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven. The award-winning and widely banned young adult novel, The Absolutely True Autobiography of a Part-Time Indian, won him the 2007 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. He's been described by Men's Journal as the world's first fast-talking, wise-cracking, mediagenic American Indian superstar. And uh, he is a filmmaker, not poet, and a novelist. Sherman Lexi, it's, uh, it's an honor to welcome you in. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. It's gorgeous here. Boy, it is. Yeah. It is. So, it um, is. you know, I live in Seattle, which is gorgeous too, but this whole different landscape I, I makes me lonely for a place I've never lived. Uh, well, I appreciate you saying that about Utah. Uh, you, you, have, you travel a lot. For, oh, for books. I've got a million miles, a million and a half miles flying over the last 20 years. So, yeah, I feel like Willie Loman half the time. Yeah. <laughs> selling my widgets. And if you uh, if you read Sherman Lexi's Twitter feed, which I recommend, it's uh, entertaining, very interesting, uh, Sherman, at Sherman underscore Lexi, uh, there's a lot of airport stuff. Oh, that's, that's, your, that's your life, right? <laughs> that's my life. Airports, airplanes. People always tell me, oh, you must see so much of the world. And I say, no, I don't. Yeah. I see a lot of uh, uh, Cinnabons. That's yeah, my yeah. life, Cinnabons. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the franchise is at the airport. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate you coming to Utah. Uh, what, what sorts of things will you be doing in the, in the Tanner Talk tonight? Uh, well, one of the big things for me recently in my personal life is my is my mom died on July 1st, and she was this powerful, amazing, magical, profane, manipulative, mean, undiagnosed, bipolar, tribal elder. Uh, she and I had a very contentious relationship. So I've been writing poems and nonfiction in the aftermath of her death, uh, looking back at our life together. So that's mm. going to be primarily what I talk about tonight. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, you uh, You lost your father... Twelve years ago 12 now, years which ago. which yeah. it doesn't seem that long ago, but it is. Yeah. Uh, and one of the strange things about grief, when you talk about losing somebody twelve years ago, I still feel it, and I'm still mm. very sad. Mm. But my sister, my baby sister, died thirty-five years ago, and that doesn't feel the same. So, so I know that eventually, is, yeah. eventually, I'm going to think about my dad the way I think about my sister. That it's going to be a distant ache. Yeah. And that relationship appears in, you know, several of your works. Oh, I have serious right. father issues. Yeah. Uh, Smoke Signals, where yes. later on we'll hear a clip from Smoke Signals, the, the movie you wrote. Uh, you know, big father theme. A um, lo- lot of love there. You, you can feel a lot of love uh, and conflicted feelings. I, I think every relationship I have in my life is conflicted. You know, as as you asked that, it occurred to me to think about it in a way I haven't before. I think necessarily as a Native American, as a colonized people, every relationship we have is infused with loss, loss of culture, loss of land, loss of language. So necessarily, every personal relationship you have, even with other Indians, is going to be filled with that. Mm -hmm. There's you, You live your entire life missing something. I don't want to loop back to that, but uh, that that loss is, I think, it's exacerbated in, in Indian country. It's uh, one of the stereotypes I think you talk about that that is true is alcoholism. Yeah, you know, it's I, you know I catch a lot of grief for that because I write about it. Well, number one, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been mm-hmm. sober for a couple decades now, but I'm an alcoholic. My father died of alcoholism. I've had a couple dozen. Relatives, close relatives, die of alcoholism. So it's not a stereotype. It's a damp reality. Mm. The thing is, though, is that addiction is a human reality and a human problem. Whenever I'm asked this question in any public gathering, I ask the assembled people, who usually come from a multicultural, multiracial background, uh, all of you who love somebody who has an addiction problem, raise your hand. Mm. And 99% of the people raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And I say, look around you. So you think alcoholism is a Native American problem? It's not. Addiction is a human problem. All I do is write about the Native American version of the human addiction story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess as you said that, I was, you know, I could, you know, I could raise my hand. Everybody uh, listening right yeah. now started mm-hmm. thinking about somebody yeah. they love mm-hmm. who is an addict. Right. Uh, your father said something heartbreaking. I was watching another interview that you that you gave. Um, I drink because I'm Indian. Yeah, he was, you know, he said that numerous times growing up. Not not that I'm, you know, the whole idea that dysfunction, that the refusal 
to belong, to participate, to stand outside on purpose to alcoholism becoming a sacred decision. That's one of the dangers of tribalism of any form is that it becomes fundamental. And, and then dysfunction becomes sacred. Dysfunction becomes mm-hmm. the thing that makes you a member of right. the tribe. Uh, and that happens across the board with any religion. But for an Indian to say that is, is really somebody who has completely given up. And my father did. My father, at some point in his life, and I can't really pinpoint the day, gave up on ever having a life outside the narrow expectations of what it means to be a reservation Indian. Hmm. Uh, what if you talk a little bit more about that? What, what, what? It, where is that? Well, number one, you stay on the res. Hmm. Number two, uh, you don't necessarily pursue success. Uh, Number three, you don't have large-scale ambitions. I mean, one of the things that marked me growing up, and I think it marks anybody in any community, is I always had epic ambitions. I mean, I grew up wanting to cure cancer and end end poverty, and Mm. uh, so these massive ideas from the earliest, from the earliest of ages. Uh, So, I think my individual eccentricity, my huge ambitions, all of that marked me as very different growing up on my reservation. I uh, wonder, this might be a good time to bring in the, there's some, uh, I guess, statements uh, at the at the beginning of the trailer for your movie, uh, The Business of Fancy Dancing. Um, so tell us about this movie, but this is your second. This second is after, movie, this I is wrote and directed this. I mean, it, it's a tiny budget movie. We made it. It's amazing to think about it, but we released it 13 years ago. But uh, we made it for uh, about $100,000 13 years ago. And with the technology available now, we could probably make it for 1999. Yeah. But it's about a, a Native American poet, a gay Native American poet, who goes back to his reservation for a funeral of his childhood best friend and runs into all sorts of drama. Let's hear the first part of this trailer. This is how to write the great American Indian novel. All of the Indians must have tragic features, tragic eyes, arms. Their hands and fingers must be tragic when they reach for tragic food. The hero must be a half-breed, half-white and half-Indian, preferably from a horse culture. He should often weep alone. There's a lot going on there, just that, that, that short passage. It's funny. Because you're you're making fun of the perceptions and and playing into maybe how some Indians play into see the perceptions themselves. as well, see themselves as well, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, uh, nothing's the, the more, stereotypes. Nothing's more funny than an Indian who takes himself seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there but there's melancholy there too. Oh, there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, we're so examined. And we're so ubiquitous in the culture. I mean, right now, if we turned on the TV here in Logan, Utah, and went through the channels, I'm sure there are 10 or 12 images of Native Americans right now on on TV. Mm-hmm. So we're everywhere in the popular culture and yet have no political power, no social power, no economic power. Uh, uh, so it, it's weird to be everywhere and almost universally admired, but also subjected to such stereotypes, subjected to such racism and oppression. So we live this incredibly bipolar life that, that is maddening. And if you weren't funny about it, it would kill you quickly. Mm-hmm. So is that the role of humor? Because it be, it, some of your oh, books are very I mean, funny. Laugh out loud. I, I think great humor necessarily comes out of great pain mm-hmm. in any culture. I yeah. think the funniest people are usually the ones who are the most screwed up. Mm-hmm. You make a connection between Indians and Jews. Yes, uh, uh, definitely being you know subjected to genocide uh, and, and genocided in the 20th century. Uh, people love to think of the Native American experience, the wars and the genocide and the oppression as being a pre-20th century experience, but it's not the case. In fact, most of the genocidal activity, the pure genocide, in terms of removing children from their homes, from their tribes, in terms of cultural eradication, in terms of dispersing Native Americans away from their communities, all of the stuff that the United Nations calls genocide, most of that was taking place into the 20th century. And in fact, into the 1970s, children were still being taken from their tribes and their families, and Native American women were still being sterilized without their permission into the 1970s. So mm. genocide didn't end for Native Americans until about 1976. 
And some people would object to the word genocide. They'd be wrong. So you, you, you call it genocide, ethnic cleansing? Yes, exactly what it was, by all the definitions of the United Nations uh, Treaties on Genocide, mm-hmm. which was uh, created in part by the United States in the aftermath of World War II. Yeah. You point out at a certain point, uh, you know, in the late 19th century, uh, you know, American Indians came close to being we were close. wiped out. We had a couple hundred thousand people left. Mm-hmm. Uh, we almost blinked out. And, and certainly that was partly due to disease, in large part due to disease, but it was also the concentrated efforts of the United States, military, government, and churches mm-hmm. to uh, eliminate us, not just physically, but culturally. See, that's a thing that people don't think about in terms of genocide. They only think in terms of bodies, of dead bodies. They don't think about in terms of language and culture. This this country actively tried to destroy and eliminate Native American cultures. Mm. And that, uh, I don't think that is made clearer in the history books. They actively tried to, you know, this was just a, it's portrayed as, uh, a, a, not a byproduct, but, you know, manifest destiny, and this is just what happened. Well, uh, you know, I've heard this argument, it's interesting, uh, that it doesn't get called genocide or people don't think it's genocide because we fought back, mm. you know, which is a variation on Ben Carson's, you know, the Holocaust would have, you know, happened because Jewish folks weren't armed and they weren't resisting. Of course, they resisted in massive numbers. But uh, uh, I think uh, a big part of it is simply being so patriotic being so romantic about the United States that you can't admit to any of its flaws. Mm-hmm. And it has profound flaws that, that, uh, in its foundations that have uh, contemporary repercussions. Including as sacred a figure as Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln ordered the, ma- the largest mass executions of people in the United States. Uh, he, killed, he ordered killed uh, 36 Sioux Indians in Mankato, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the great emancipator was also the great capital punisher. So do you think they're, you know, that that's a, that's a bad effect of deification of our, of our political figures? Is it that we don't see the whole picture? You know, I wonder if, if because the United States is a European culture, is a European country, I wonder, I often wonder if the deification of our political leaders is because of the deification of royalty that existed in so much of European history, mm-hmm. that we look at our political leaders, even in the United States, as royalty, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, uh, certainly because there's so much money involved, we certainly. I mean, the only reason Trump is a candidate is because he's a billionaire. There's mm-hmm. he has not distinguished himself in any other way other than the fact that he was born into money, and and has money. Uh, so what is that if not the deification of American royalty? Mm-hmm. You uh, you have a funny funny poem. There's a bit of melancholy there as well about Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and you also comment on the crazy horse. Yeah, well, crazy horse never allowed right. itself to be photographed, so uh, in fact, avoided it, like mm-hmm. ran away from photographers. So, uh, which was easier those days because they took so much longer to develop the mm-hmm. photos. But uh, and they're making a statue of him, which is completely his image, capturing his image, which is something he never wanted to have. So, uh, it's it's an iconic, completely misrepresentative notion of who Crazy Horse is and was. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, based on how he's disc- how he looked, you know, this statue is really looking like a a very, uh, very iconic Sioux Indian with the huge cheekbones and the and the you know big headdress and and this magnificent statue. When in fact, Crazy Horse was pretty small. And was actually described as pale-skinned and light-haired. Mm. So, uh, you know, I imagine Crazy Horse had some uh, white settlers in his uh, genetic past. Right. So, you know, but that statue wouldn't be nearly as interesting uh, to have this uh, a multiracial Native American hero. Uh, you know, the complications of biology aren't as interesting as, you know, a giant big-nosed Sioux Indian statue to, to measure up against Mount Rushmore. Uh, so it's taking what you just said, um, you know, mixed race, uh, and increasingly America is turning brown. Uh, is do you see that as a as leading to the positive direction that we're going to get past some of these well, the racial hangups? St- well, it's always been brown. Uh, the world history is brown and mixed, and 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 
uh, cosmopolitan and diverse. Uh, I ch- everybody, I want everybody to do a, a genealogy test, a DNA test. You'll be shocked at what you find, you know, uh, in terms of your actual history, your genetic history, as opposed to the history that's been passed down to you. I don't think there'd be a greater lesson to any individual than to see the contradiction between what their genetics say about their past and what family history says about their past, mm-hmm. because people lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so a lot of our assumptions about who we are are based on old family lies. I mean, for me, for yeah. instance, I'm supposed to be about 90% Native American, according to uh, who... According to who begat who, who begat who begat who, but you know I have way too much chest hair to be ninety percent Indian. Way too much chest hair. There's there's some Slavic people in my past. <laughs> and perception is very very important, isn't it? You uh, I think you you cut your hair right the, when your father died. Was yeah. It? Um, and on your uh, website, uh, you have four quotes. The have your website. One is from the New York Times Book Review. Mr. Lexies is one of the major lyric voices of our time. A uh, woman on Facebook, Sherman looked more Indian when his hair was long, <laughs> is one of the comments. Uh, let's see. San Francisco Chronicle, emotionally spring-loaded, linguistically gymnastic, devastatingly funny. And a dude on Twitter has the last quote, I hate Sherman Alexi. Yeah, well, it's the uh, dichotomy of public life and of an artist's life. The, the good reviews and the bad reviews. So yeah. I wanted to make sure I put that up. And, you know, I didn't want to create this laudatory website. I certainly want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, only only really ordinary, boring things are met with universal acclaim. Mm-hmm. You know, I think gravity, for instance, has universal acclaim. I don't want to be gravity. You you don't want to be their universal acclaim. No, I no, not at all. In fact, you, you wouldn't be doing your job right. I exactly. Guess. I sh- yeah. I should only be about you know somewhere between fifty one and sixty percent. <laughs> liked <laughs> very good i wonder what so why did you cut your hair when your dad died uh it's part of uh, my family's ceremonies about okay. mourning mm-hmm. uh you cut your hair and you can grow it back yeah when but you feel you, like the grieving is short. over i left it short uh i don't feel like the grieving will ever be over mm-hmm. and plus time management issues so yeah. it's about grief certainly but it's also about it just my life is easier with mm-hmm. short hair now you you have a funny line i was watching a speech you gave um that uh, white people tend to um, attach ceremonial or or spiritual meaning to everything Indians do. Uh, Every moment of our lives. Uh, Which is that it's kind of that box that I guess the the culture puts you in, right? But the thing is, it's it's such a positive stereotype. It's such a positive misrepresentation to think that we have magical spiritual powers that Mm -hmm. Indians adopt it. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of natives out there having whole careers based on their imaginary spiritual powers. (laughs) So... uh, uh, and, and, you know, why not, I guess, uh, after, you know, a few hundred years of getting your butt kicked for being Indian, it, it's hard to resist being celebrated simply because you're Indian. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, have you ever pulled legs that way? I, I think I, I have Indian friends who probably have to me. <laughs> uh, I see the glint in their eye and I don't know whether they're laughing with oh, me or Oh, I, I give people hell all the time. So, and Good. I'm teasing and, uh the public and friends about who and what I am. Right. But I'm, 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 I mean, I'm a far more complex right. individual as we all are about my identity. So my identities, I, I, I'm a hundred different people at any given point. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to follow up on that identity living between worlds. You seem to live in, I don't know, in the in-between, you know, but a lot of people do. Uh, we all do. I live, I mean, the thing is, I get, you get taught growing up as a Native American, and I think a lot of people get taught this when they're in outsider communities, is that there's some sort of uh, difficulty about living in two worlds. And, you know, there's always some sort of conflict going on. But the thing is, uh, I don't live in two worlds. I live in, I live in dozens. Mm. Uh, and the thing is, being taught that is another form of fundamentalism. It's another form of mind control and, and thought control and, and uh, personal control to teach your children Think of themselves as being limited, and that's dangerous. Let's take a break more with Sherman Alexie. We're very pleased to have Sherman Alexie with us uh, for the hour today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. 
Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. Women have a tremendous responsibility to help shape the future of America, to help decide policies that will affect the course of our history. Patsy Mink. Mink was the first woman of color elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and the first Asian American in Congress. She's largely responsible for the passage of Title Bill 9, ending sex discrimination in education, including athletics. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm very pleased to have as my guest for the hour, Sherman Alexi. Uh, he's the author of 20 books, including Reservation Blues and The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven. Uh, his young adult novel, The Absolutely True Autobiography of a Part-Time Indian, won him the 2007 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Uh, it is widely banned as well. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, men's literature describes Sherman Alexi as the world's first fast-talking, wise-cracking, mediagenic American Indian superstar. And uh, you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, I want to talk about uh, identity. You, you you have said that you uh, people ascribe to you, especially in big cities, whatever identity, you know, uh, wh- whatever their ethnicity is. I am ambiguously ethnic. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm light brown and dark haired. And, and uh, so people generally think I'm half of whatever they are. Yeah. You know, I go into a metropolitan area like New York or L.A. or Chicago, and I get spoken to in 150 different languages, <laughs> most often Spanish. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I see that. no habla español, <laughs> indio de norteamericanos. So, uh, That's what you say. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wonder, growing up, what was your... Well, I grew was, up in was eastern Washington, yeah. which, is, which is, you know... Uh, even wider than Utah, so yeah. uh, you know, and Utah isn't so white anymore because of uh, 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 you know whole whole bunch of brown folks living here now, especially Pacific Islanders. And and uh, uh, so growing up, I was distinctly and overtly and obviously native and and easily identifiable mm-hmm. as such. So I was subject to all the positives and the negatives of that. Mm-hmm. And we lived in a different era, the '60s and '70s, where racism was far more present and active and acceptable. So, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of, and my family and all Indians dealt with a lot of racism. Hmm. What were the positives? Uh, it was at the burgeoning era of Native pride, you know, with the American Indian movement, which is complicated and complex and also brought with it a lot of violence I disagree with, but also there was a corresponding sense of being proud of being Native American. It was the... Uh, the recovery from genocide really began in the mid-60s through 70s is to start returning to your culture, returning to your languages, returning to your people. And and that was one of the really positive aspects of being a Native kid in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. was growing up in an era where it was cool, where it was cool again to be Native. And then you, at a certain point, you, you left the reservation, went to a... a well, I lived on the school. reservation through college. Oh, uh, you did? Okay. Yeah, but I left... Uh, the reservation schools in eighth grade. And mm-hmm. I, from eighth grade on, I went to a border town high school where I was the only Indian except for the mascot, at least my except first year. Except for the mascot. <laughs> except my first year. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then I lived on the reservation during college as well mm-hmm. uh, when I wasn't at school. Why did you choose to go to this other school? Well, I was pre-med. I wanted to be pre-med. I was a pediatrician was my whole ambition. Uh, and at that point, my, my reservation high school didn't have advanced chemistry. I mean, advanced science of any kind, didn't have computers of any kind, uh, didn't even have a foreign language teacher. Our school board had voted to make English our foreign language requirement, just despite the fact that none of us spoke our tribal language. Uh, I understand the cultural significance of that decision, but it had no realistic <laughs> notions about what it means to get into college. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I knew the school wasn't good enough, but the real the pre- precipitating event was when I opened up my math book in seventh grade 
And my mom's name was written in it, my mom's maiden name. Mm. So I was looking at a 30-year-old math book, and wow. that was it. I knew I had to leave. It took me a year to get up the courage. I mean, I grew up in a monoculture. My reservation is about 95% native, and about 70% of that is Spokane native. We did a family tree in sixth grade. Everybody in the class was related, including the teacher. <laughs> so I grew up in a small place. Mm-hmm. So the idea of leaving was enormous. And I still celebrate my parents for letting me go. Mm. Uh, they essentially let me become an adult when I was 14 and start making my own decisions about my future. That is a, that's a big decision, brave decision at 14. Oh, I, you know, I, I look at my 14-year-old, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was a crazy thing I did. Uh, it was an enormous thing I did. Uh, so I can look back at admiration at the foolhardy uh, adventurer that I was. Mm-hmm. Were there anybody? Were there was there anybody on on the reservation that uh, thought, well, you're, this young man's leaving his culture? He's oh, of course they did, uh, and some still believe that. Some continue to believe that about me that I'm not a part of my culture, uh, and I believe that about myself in large part. Uh, certainly, in my worst moments, I completely believe that about myself. But one day I was on stage, and when I'm performing. Or talking, as with anybody, you can have all sorts of conversations going on in your head about what you're doing, about what you might say later, about what you had for breakfast that morning. And then there's that other voice that's sort of examining the moment at all times. And I was up on stage performing, and it occurred to me, wait a second, I travel the world telling stories. My entire life is based on telling stories. I'm the traditional one. Why did I let all these casino Indians make me feel less than traditional? I'm the traditional one. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, uh, you skewer, you know, sacred cows. I'm mixing metaphors, probably there, but uh, <laughs> skewering. Uh, it's a barbecue. In, in, it's a barbecue uh, in kind of an equal opportunity culture, you know. And I, I wonder what the reaction you get, you know, from Indian culture, from white culture, from. Oh, I, I, you know, I'm a, I, from natives and whites. I mean, I get the comedian, trickster, sacred clown sort of thing, all of which are partly true, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm a writer and a storyteller, and I'm not in this for public relations. I'm not in this to make people feel better about themselves. I'm in this to tell my version of the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is. Right. It's my version of the truth. Uh I'm just happen to be better at metaphors than most everybody else. I wonder you you said earlier uh, that uh, that this, this was the first step regaining your culture, first step to recovering from genocide. Where where, where what are the next steps? Oh, what? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I guess it ends up being the next step is, is assimilation is what's happening, and which is good and bad. I mean, we're becoming more and more American. I mean, we have casinos. Talk about being American. Talk about being capitalistic. Uh, and now some tribes are thinking about moving into marijuana production and sales where it's legal. So, oh, I mean, talk about being the worst kind of American. I can't wait for reality shows. We're going to have reservation-based reality shows soon. We're going to be the worst kind of Americans. That's when you know things are okay is when we're being awful. That'd be a weird badge of, I guess... Advancement, or yeah. When we're when we're behaving, you know, when we're we're being lowest common denominator Americans like everybody else, you know, we belong. Right, right. What's the role of storyteller? You, did you see yourself as storyteller? You're filmmaker, poet. Uh, yeah, well, what, uh, number one, an entertainer. I mean, mm-hmm. for most of our life, you know, there were long nights around the campfire. Somebody had to talk. Yeah. Uh, so number one, entertainer, uh, politician, activist, uh, comedian, rabble rouser. Uh, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that distinguishes us from all the other creatures is our facility with language and metaphor. And some of us are better than it mm-hmm. at others. So uh, I, I get to be uh, uh, that. What does it do for you? I guess there, there are many different things you do, and you <laughs> have to address each one. But, but just generally what you do, does well, it, does it, I mean, is it healing good, in some way? Does it, is it, I make a good living. I guess <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. I'm that's one of true. the lucky, yes. lucky few. Yeah. Uh, it pays my bills, number one. Uh, you know, people ask that, does my writing help me like, psychologically, spiritually? Sometimes. But as with any job, it's also just a job. Mm. So... Uh, I mean, last night I flew into Salt Lake and then drove up here to Logan, and uh, I mean, it was boring. <laughs> and I was on an airplane 
for an hour and 40 minutes, and then I was in a car for an hour and 40 minutes, and then I was in a hotel room awake till one in the morning. It was boring. <laughs> so not not the glamour that sometimes we no, ascribe to so, this life. Uh, so, I mean, and all in pursuit of what I get to do today is tell stories all day. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I have to commute to work. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think maybe where that question comes from, I'm not sure where it came from with me, but uh, is uh, I mean, people know you're bipolar. Yeah. And and there, there you know, there's a there's a long history of writers with mental illness. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there seems to be some correlation between artists and mental illness. And then, then people wonder if the you know the writing is cathartic or if it's healing. So maybe that's where the question. Comes I don't from. know that my writing is going to change my brain chemistry. You know. You know, a poem is not going to help me in the way that uh, <laughs> Lamictal is going to help right. me. So, uh, no, I don't see it working that way at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of talk therapy and, and having a voice, that will help you with certain traumas in your past. But it's going to do nothing about actual biology. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back, especially when you were undiagnosed, did you know writing in a manic state i got a lot more writing done (laughs) i published far fewer poems and stories than i did Mm pre-medication so and one of the interesting ways it's really affected me is on the basketball court Uh, really i used to play with a lot of barely contained anger and 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 when it became there was a certain level of anger if i played at that i played my best Mm. uh and I don't get that way at all anymore. I don't even come close to that anymore in terms of being ferocious on the basketball court. And combined with my aging rapidly and my diminishing physical abilities, my lack of fiery competitiveness has also really affected my game. Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I have to pick offense or defense. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, but I love it. I, love I always it. pick offense. And I've played with guys. I've, I've played with guys like that, that played with that barely contained, you know, ferocity. I, I will. I will beat you three to two. Yeah. I will hit a three, and you can have your two. So, so there's, there's. Which, uh, you can which, channel it, right? Yeah. Which, well, like with Kobe Bryant now, he's, you know, he's in this battle that, I mean, last night, first game of the NBA season, he shot 33 percent. He only had one assist, and he can't guard anybody. He's like everybody at the YMCA. That's what he is. He's like the. The, the greatest possible version of every player at the YMCA. He is selfish, doesn't play defense, takes breaks. Uh, uh, it's amazing to watch this collapse of this amazing athlete. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think it, it affected the quality of your writing, you know, when you were writing in the manic state? Did, did, did it? Uh, I worry about that, and I worried about that, but my mom died July 1st, and in the aftermath of that I wrote, hundreds of poems and nonfiction pieces in this burst of creativity I haven't had in a long time. And I think it's pretty incredible what I wrote. Mm. So I think I think the pain of my mother's death and then the pain of our life together, we had a very contentious relationship, I think has unleashed me again. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that, that always strikes me. You, you have you know a contentious relationship up, down, all over the place, all every feeling in the book, but when they die, it, you know that you, I don't know, you you think maybe that would affect the amount of grief that you feel, but I don't think it does. Well, you end up grieving the person. You end up, I mean, I don't miss her meanness. Uh, I what I grieve is the chance for things to get better. I grieve the fact that. She grew up as a Native American woman in the United States, and in order to survive that, she had to get mean in certain ways that really made her a difficult person. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't all her fault. I mean, she certainly bears individual responsibility for some of the things she did, but she was also subjected to epic levels of oppression, and that's part of it too. Mm. We do have uh, an email and a call. Let me get to the email first, and we'll get to uh, Rich. Uh, This is from Steve in uh, Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, He says, this is perhaps folk genetics, but I have read that one can correlate on a graph the prevalence of alcoholism in a genetic population by plotting on one axis alcoholic prevalence and on the other axis the amount of time the group's culture has been using alcohol. According to this theory, the longer an ethnic or cultural group has been using alcohol, the lower is the rate of alcoholism. 
Thus, Chinese, Japanese, and Jews have been, uh, who have been drinking alcohol for millennia have fairly low rates. Mediterranean people who were introduced to it more recently, slightly higher rates. Northern Europeans, including the Irish, higher rates still. Native Americans, many of whose cultures were only exposed to alcohol for the first time in the last few centuries, even higher rates. Perhaps this is folk just, just folk genetics, he says, but uh, there's a certain logic to the idea that the longer a group has been using alcohol, the more time there has been for it to weed out the predisposing gene, and that relatively recent exposure to alcohol is at the root of much of alcoholism suffered by Native Americans. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I mean, it sounds like folk genetics. It also doesn't take into account that we Native Americans are actually also Asian, uh, descended uh, in large part from Asian people. Uh, it also doesn't take into account the fact that we all started in Africa. So uh, we share a lot of the same genetics. Also, uh, you know, there is a certain intolerance for alcohol among certain Asian folks, uh, which maybe Native Americans have as well. I don't know. Uh, when you get into this, this kind of stuff, you end up sounding eugenics-like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you would attribute it to the... To the, the problems, the social I would, atmosphere. I would say addiction problems are probably exactly the same in every community. Mm-hmm. Here's a question from Rich. He says, if you could dress up in a costume for Halloween, what would you be? Oh, uh, something big and scary. <laughs> something big and scary, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you probably get some Ted Cruz masks out Yes. There. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let me, uh, let me pull this up. While I'm looking this up, I, I want to, uh, have you address an incident that happened uh, here in Utah not too long ago, uh, Copper Hills High School in the Salt Lake City area. Uh, the cheerleaders uh, did a float. This is part of the homecoming parade where they dressed up as, uh, Pocahontas. And so they're, they're doing the Disney thing. Uh, it's, it's kind of hot Pocahontas, right? So kind of skimpy costumes and, um, we did a whole show on this, talking about cultural appropriation. Um, you know, who, you know, the, the majority culture appropriating certain elements of a minority culture. I wonder what you think about this. Well, appropriation is not necessarily the right term in this case, certainly, because with appropriation, there's at least the hint, the idea that something positive is going to be represented and stolen and taken advantage of, that you're going to use it for your personal gain. Uh, This is just blasphemy. Uh, The thing is about mascots, about dressing up as a native, as a non-native. When you talk about feathers and beads and and buckskin and all the accoutrement, all all the regalia, all the sacred clothing, I mean, it's religious. Those are vestments. (laughs) Uh, So dressing up as an Indian on a float, you're really being blasphemous against a whole other people's religion. And the only way you can do that is if you completely disregard the fact that other people have other religions. And and that's that's it's interesting to watch when I bring this line of argument to these folks as they're desperately trying not to say but it's not a real religion, but you can see it in their eyes. Uh that that you know outside of Christianity, uh you can mock any religion you want to and you can mock all the images you want to of of that of that religion and in fact it can become mainstream you can have sports teams that use religious imagery constantly uh and and mock it hmm. so this is racist it's blasphemous it's colonial and it's just being little jerks mm-hmm. now the I, I should say the the young people handled it well probably better than the adults the Native American club there at the high school demanded an apology, and the cheerleaders did apologize. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, what if you talk about... I mean, also an apology for being skimpy on a high school float, yeah. wearing skimpy clothing of any, you know, would you be in a bikini mm-hmm. on a high school float? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of apologies I think needed to go around. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of bad decision making, mm-hmm. and that's what teenagers do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that adults would run to defend them in the aftermath mm-hmm. is, is adults making bad decisions, and there's no excuse for that. Yeah, which they did. I mean, some adults did, you know, yeah. say, well, this is not a big deal. Um, what I've seen in several interviews, you've, you've talked about the fact that we don't talk about Chief Wahoo, for example, that, that a lot of people oh, that's think the worst, a lot of, you know, that's, and then the, the Redskins, this is the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me about Chief Wahoo. Cleveland Indians, Chief Wahoo mascot. That is the single most racist image <laughs> in popular American culture. Uh, that's still acceptable 
I mean, if you take Chief Wahoo, for those of you listening, get on your phones or your computers right now and, and you do an image search for Chief Wahoo and then do an image search for Sambo or the Frito Bandito or Charlie Chan or Mr. Moto or any of these other, you know, uh, racist images that have long since been uh, uh, <laughs> relegated to history and see that this incredibly racist image is the same thing. Big nose, big lips, that this racist image is allowed to be on the baseball hats of a major league sports franchise. And there's not a whole lot of outcry about it. No, not as much as the Redskins. I think the fact yeah. that Washington is in the nation's capital has something to do with it. Uh, and the fact that Redskins is not of itself a racial insult, I think, may have something to do with it. But Chief Wahoo is 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 radically more offensive than the Redskins imagery. Mm. What do you think is going to have to happen then? To, time. To time? Time. Mm. I mean, hundreds of high schools and colleges have changed, thousands at this point, and it'll it'll keep changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. Uh, and the thing is, people clinging to these ideas are, are going to look like archaic racist fools. In mm. fact, they already do look like archaic racist fools. Mm. And uh, uh, we have to think about, I mean, everything changes. Uh, uh, culture changes. Uh, and these mascots were created at a time when racism against Native Americans, racism against all minorities, was active, present, and completely acceptable. And these mascots are a part of that horrible legacy. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Sherman Alexie. He's uh, written uh, 20 books, including Reservation Blues, Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fistfight in Heaven, the absolutely uh, true autobiography of a part-time Indian. We have uh, Sherman Alexie with us for another uh, seven or eight minutes. I want to get to this uh, from my sister, actually. I, I uh, texted her last night, knowing she's a big Sherman Alexie fan, um, and uh, she uh, she said she she and my father loved uh, Reservation Blues, loved uh, loved the stories. Uh, for example, she brings up that an Indian never knew when one of those powdered milk bombs was going to explode in his mouth. The, 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 <laughs> it would never dissolve, you know, completely. The government food. The government milk. food. Uh, let's see. The fact that Junior had real movie star Indian hair. Another character drove her car all over the res backwards because it got stuck in reverse. You actually knew a guy, I think, right? Yeah, and my res who drove his truck in reverse for a week before it broke down. Uh, the thing is, you know, the broken down cars are a part of poverty. You know, the unreliable car and not having money to fix them and hoping and praying your car is going to get you to where you need to be. Uh, I mean, I, my car, my battery, I'm having issues with my battery. Uh, and so I was broken down uh, batteryless recently, this last couple of days ago, and I called AAA, and is there anything more privileged than right. calling AAA where for whatever I pay a month, $80 a month, uh, to protect myself against myself, and that's some, some dude who with far superior <laughs> mechanical skills than I will ever have comes and rescues me and puts a new battery in. How amazing is that? How privileged yeah. is that? Uh, when I spent many, many hours in my youth trapped in a car while my parents desperately tried to figure out what to do and how to get us home mm-hmm. or to our event or, or yeah. So uh, I don't discount the privileges I now enjoy. You're right. That is usually poverty, um, you know, not specific to any, any one group. And I, I think you, a lot of people reading your books respond to that, right? They, they grew up poor. They were, they responded to that. Yeah. The, the two things that people respond to, I think are father issues and poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I'm going to have a lot more fans. The way the economy is going and income disparity and the collapse of the middle class, I think uh, poverty literature is going to continue to play, probably even play more an important role now in the United States. Hmm. Do you, um, like I said, you have a lot of humor in your book. There's melancholy. You're working through issues. Um, but do you write angry? You, you know, there's, there's, you, you read, you read tweets, you read some speeches that, you know, you watch some speeches that you give, and there's, oh, a, there's some anger I, there too. Oh yeah, of course, I love a lot of anger. Uh, how could you not? Uh, I look at the way this country works. Uh, I look at the way it's set up and controlled completely by corporations and by rich people, and the way in which they manipulate us pit us against each other mm-hmm. and the way they enact laws and policies that continue to make them more powerful and rich and the rest of us less powerful and rich. Mm-hmm. And how could you not be angry? Do, uh, you, do you think that's just going to be exacerbated, just going to get worse? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
you know, my dream, my hope, my 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 wish, and I think probably it's a reality is that there's a an FDR type president on the way, that there's some ten year old right now, <laughs> some eight year old, and and my dream is that it's a Latina, uh, uh, a moderate Republican with socially liberal, moderately conservative economically who's going to come in and uh, be an FDR president who's going to put us all back to work repairing the infrastructure of the United States and start actually going back to manufacturing uh, and making things, making objects and pride in work and the living wage and uh, addressing income dis- disparity and, and doing it in a way that is both liberal and conservative. And, and I think that's possible. I wonder if you could do, just have a few minutes left. I'd, I'd like to have you read a passage from uh, the book here that we've prepared. Uh, this is uh, this is from the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. I'm uh, I was lost in a second. Uh, <laughs> uh, I should say oh, this this is the one uh, that got banned, right? Yeah, this, this one, is the one that frequently banned. Actually, was the most banned and challenged book in the United States uh, last year. So. Uh, on the res, you know every father's mother, grandmother, dog, cat, and shoe size. I mean, yeah, Indians are screwed up, but we're really close to each other. We know each other. Everybody knows everybody. But despite the fact that Reardon is a tiny white town, people can still be strangers to each other. I mean, I've learned that white people, especially fathers, are good at hiding in plain sight. I mean, yeah, my dad would sometimes go on a drinking binge and be gone for a week, but those white dads can completely disappear without ever leaving the living room. They can just blend into their chairs. They become their chairs. So, okay, I'm not all goofy-eyed in love with white people, all right? Plenty of the old white guys still give me that stink eye just for being Indian, and a lot of them think I shouldn't be in the school at all. I'm realistic, okay? I've thought about these things, and maybe I haven't done enough thinking, but I've done enough to know that it's better to live in Reardon than in Welpen. It may be only slightly better to be in that white town than on the res, but from where I'm standing, slightly better is about the size of the Grand Canyon. And this is the experience. You had this experience. Yeah, I left the reservation yeah, left school. The reservation and going. Uh, you say it's gotten better. Do you still encounter racism? You know, on an individual basis, much less so, of course, than I ever did before. But I don't live in those areas where Indians are subjected to active racism. Mm -hmm. I don't live in Montana Mm -hmm. on a reservation. I don't live in in eastern Washington anymore. I don't live in those places where Indians are still targets for that. Mm -hmm. I live in a place where institutional racism is what's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Here's a question from Joe by email. He says, what was the inspiration of Indian Killer? The inspiration for Indian Killer, which is my novel about uh, a serial killer in Seattle who is killing white men and making it look as though a Native American might be doing it, my inspiration for that was sitting in classrooms at Washington State University with those baseball hat-wearing white frat guys in the back row who were just awful in all sorts of ways. And the only way I could make it through class without killing them is to fantasize about killing them instead. So uh, it was really about my rage and frustration with my education mm. uh, or, or the fact that how my education was hampered by these white guys, these privileged white guys who weren't even interested in being there and who only served to disrupt the process. What's your take on the, the epidemic of mass shootings that we've Oh, well, why is anybody surprised? We live in a country that has celebrated violence, that is founded on violence, a country founded on slavery of African Americans and the genocide of Native Americans. Why are we surprised that this violence persists? Why are we surprised that guns are romanticized and and beloved uh, when this is how the country was founded? It wasn't founded on... uh, solidarity. It wasn't founded on love. It was founded on rapacious capitalism and, and violent individualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing, uh, my sister Jane uh, says one of her reminiscences is uh, just enjoying your, your books with, with our father and, and my dad laughing till he, his he has tears come out of his eyes to, to smoke signals, some of the funny passages. What what do you get back from listeners? What What are they getting out of the books? What do you hope they get out of the, of the writing? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, certainly the great letters I've been getting recently have been with True Diary of a Part-Time Indian from young folks from all walks of life talking about feeling trapped by their community's expectations 
and the fight to be free, to make, to pursue a life of their own, to create a new life. So those are the letters I really appreciate getting. Uh, Sherman Lexi, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's time again for Utah StoryCorps. Everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal. Two friends, Sarah Eaton and Joanna Seves, take us to their world of comic characters and conventions, beginning with a definition of cosplay. It's short for costume play. Yes. Um, it's the art of dressing up and creating a costume being this character so ultimately you could do it anywhere you could do it in your backyard um but the goal is to take it to a convention you can go on amazon and buy your pre-made iron man costume costume. whatever i could buy it for seven dollars or i could spend 92 dollars on craft supplies and make it myself in three weeks and ruin the carpet in my craft room and Um, lose feeling in my fingertips from the glue gun it's true. Or when we like spray foamed our hands together, that was that also was fun. fun. That was great. But when you take it to the convention, your thirty dollar costume is like, oh, whatever, just like, another Iron Man or just another whatever character, yeah, whatever, whatever character. The months and months of lost time character. You can't even walk. There are people standing there wanting to take their pictures with you, asking you about it. How did this? How did you do this? Do you How did a, you get this in here? Do you have here? a website? Do you make tutorials? Yeah. Do you like, have a card? Like, you are a rock star. I had a little four-year-old Darth Maul came up and tugged on my sweatshirt. I was dressed up like Jack Frost, a character from the kids' movie The Rise of the Guardians. And he thought I was Jack. And his mom said, you know, he would really like a picture with you, Jack. Is that okay? And this little boy's face just lit up when I let him hold the staff and asked him who we were going to blast with it. You you dress up like these characters. You are these characters. It's theater. It's, it's fabrication of props and materials. It's sewing. It's art and painting. It's so many different things all together it's research it's so i was gonna say for me the the science geek in me is i get to research so much so much research put this data together put it in a spreadsheet start figuring out all of my formulas to how i'm going to get this to work and actually getting there and then seeing that finished product you know it's like picking up that little vial of clear liquid and being like Mm -hmm. oh i isolated what i was looking for yes like Having that hanger with that costume on it, like, I got it. It's so rewarding when you finish a costume and you walk out onto, like, the convention floor and you hear your character's name shouted out, like, hey, Jules, or hey, Psylocke, and people want a photo with you and they recognize the effort you've put into it. And they love the character as much as you do. You, You get this character, you've read the comic, or you understand it. And you get to make new friends that way, too. Like, think of all of our friends in Salt Lake that... It's true. We've made friends with the cosplay geek crowd. That's so cool. It's so rad that I can call someone and be like, I've got this piece of thermoplastic and I need to mold it into a mask that lights up. How do I do this? And they're like, oh, you need to follow this and this and this and this and this step. Do you want to come borrow my power tools? Yes. Let's have tacos afterwards. And And it's just like, yes. Veggie tacos. I'd like it to not be so weird to be weird in this town. And it's so much easier to be weird when you can do it with a friend. Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps Project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at memorymark.com.